is Fine Music Radio, and in place of people of note this week, we have another in our series, Fine Minds, introduced by UCT Emeritus Professor Ingrid Fisk. We are honored to have as our Fine Minds lecturer today, internationally acclaimed South African artist, William Kentridge. He will reflect on the genesis of Notes Towards a Model Opera, a three-screen projection that was the key work in his survey exhibition in Beijing in June 2015. He worked on the project with the dancer Dada Masila and a group of musicians under the direction of Philip Miller, and you will hear extracts from that music today. The work has also been shown in solo exhibitions at the Marion Goodman Gallery in London and New York and at the Goodman Gallery in Johannesburg. A text version of this talk, which has been delivered in public before, will be included in the forthcoming catalogue of the China exhibition. William Kentridge is one of South Africa's preeminent artists and one of the most recognized contemporary artists in the world. Well known for his animated films based on charcoal drawings, he also works in prints, books, collage, sculpture and the performing arts, most notably theater and opera. In addition to more intimate works, his topics encompass South African history, particularly the history of Johannesburg and of mining and apartheid South Africa and its legacy as well as the Russian Revolution, the Chinese Cultural Revolution, and most recently, the history of Rome. Arguably, no other South African artist and few contemporary international artists have made work of the same scope and scale. Kentridge's work has been seen in museums, galleries, theatres and opera houses around the world, including a documenta in Kassel, Germany, at the Tate Museum in London, the Louvre in Paris, the Albertina Museum in Vienna, La Scala in Milan and in New York's Metropolitan Museum, Metropolitan Opera and its Museum of Modern Art. A substantial survey of his work opened in Rio de Janeiro in 2012, afterwards going to many cities and countries. His accolades are legion and I shall mention only a few. In 2010 he received the important Kyoto Prize in recognition of his contributions in the field of arts and philosophy. Yale University, the University of London and the University of Cape Town are among the institutions which have recently awarded him honorary doctorates and in 2011 he was elected as an honorary member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters. In 2012 he delivered a dazzling set of lectures, the prestigious Charles Eliot Norton Lectures at Harvard University. In 2015 he was appointed as an honorary academician of the Royal Academy in London. Kentridge's recent work includes the 2015 opera production of Alban Berg's Lulu, which opened in Amsterdam, was seen at the Metropolitan Opera in New York, and will be at the English National Opera in November this year. And April saw the presentation of his ephemeral site-specific work, Triumphs and Laments, a 500-metre frieze on the walls of the Tiber River in Rome, and depicting triumphs and laments in the history of Rome. At the performance which premiered the artwork, Live shadow play and two musical processions, one an expression of triumph, one of lament, converged against the backdrop of the frieze and projected voices and instruments across the river in a haunting composition by Philip Miller and Tatuka Sibisi. The talk which follows is entitled Peripheral Thinking, which Kentridge defines as ideas pushed aside by thoughts, connected to but not central to them, it is a set of meditations on the connections of Africa to China and on the Chinese Cultural Revolution, reflections generated 
in the making of the work Notes Towards a Model Opera. Apparently whimsical personal observations arise from and generate philosophical ideas and historical facts as he constructs a complex collage of impressions, beliefs and opinions from what he calls visual intrusions in his studio. Newspaper clippings, photographs, paintings and objects in the studio migrate in the talk and in the work from the periphery into the centre. And thus the talk demonstrates something of the unique way his mind works and what prompts and provokes his celebrated art. What happens at the edges? This morning I meant to be talking about the importance of the margins, but I can't stop thinking about mangoes. Let it be said that it is the end of their season as I write this, and our kitchen is filled with their overripe sweet smell. The correct way to eat a mango, I was told in my childhood, was in the bath. A face cloth to wipe your face, and fingernails cut not too short to ease the fibers from between your teeth. I don't think I ever did eat a mango in the bath. It was something about the mixed smell of mangoes and shampoos, but the image of the enamel bathtub and the mango form a pair. This, we must remember, is in the era when mangoes were full of fibers before the so-called Fiesel Luisa Fiesel Pascus. In our family, we, we always make lists. Best author, worst author, best fruit, worst fruit. And a mango is my daughter's best fruit, but it is my father's worst fruit. I'm aware that this is of no interest at all, but I'm trying to follow the thoughts wherever they go. Here also resisting the attempt to construct an argument. To offer an explanation of the themes of this talk, these notes were written in my studio in Johannesburg in anticipation of this talk. And I'm trying to keep track of the life in the studio. There are other ideas hovering in the wings apart from the mango. So on the studio wall there's a drawing of a bowl of peonies. There's an image of an ink drawing of a small bird, a sparrow. The drawing of the peonies are already there on the wall. The bird still hover as an idea. It's an impulse I want to follow to make an image of these birds out of water, wet ink, and the way the paper absorbs the ink. Okay, here it's clear that I'm not good at focusing on a single thought, but somehow in the talk I have to try to rescue this failure. I latch on to any stray image or thought that lets me off the hook, or prolongs the moment when I have to start pushing a coherent thought through. So around the walls of the studio there are mangoes, swallows, sparrows, paintings of peonies, a real enamel jug, a painting of the expulsion of Pope Clement in 1440, portraits of the composer Albenberg, his wife and his mistress, three Heifelt landscapes, there's some pages of a Chinese dictionary. There are pages from a newspaper from the Paris Commune of 1871. These are all the images which are pinned up on the walls of the studio. 
Now, this newspaper from the Paris Commune of 1871, one of the extracts pinned on the wall reads as follows. Obituary. We announce the death in Paris of Monsieur Barolet, a baritone in the National Opera. Monsieur Barolet possessed a very curious collection of paintings, ancient and modern, well appreciated by connoisseurs. Monsieur Barolet died playing dominoes. The same newspaper reports from the Grahamstown Journal of 1871 that a diamond of 119 carats of the clearest color has been found in South Africa. I mean, we could easily spend this next hour of this talk just reading these different entries on the newspaper. Now, circling the studio, there is this persistent peripheral vision of the images on the walls of the studio. You can stop walking and study them, but they also float at the edges of vision as you pass. They're reminders of that which you are not focused on. And parallel to this peripheral vision, there is a peripheral thinking. Ideas pushed aside by thoughts, connected to but not central to them. The visual intrusions which are vital in every studio, having all these different images pinned up on the wall, they're both a prompt to but also a way of describing the thinking they provoke. I try to fix on one thought, on one argument, but I'm immediately filled with other thoughts. So, for an example, the uses of a tree. A tree. I go into the garden and I fix on this tree in the garden and then try to record the thoughts that arise. Here I'm interested in the porousness of focus, trying to focus on the tree and seeing what else emerges. So there's the tree in the garden, which is in fact a white stinkwood. I note the roughness of the bark, and then I have the memory of the rough bark of a mulberry tree in the corner of the garden of my first childhood home. I have a memory of hanging by my legs from the smooth bark of the branch of a walnut tree in that same garden. I think of the branches of the tree like the bronchi of a lung, the sunlight on a leaf. I think of the suicide of Virginia Woolf. Virginia Woolf wrote that the brightest thing in nature is sunlight on a leaf. The tree is a gibbet. The uses of a tree, a pencil, a table, the plain planks of a coffin, West Park Cemetery. There are four private thoughts that pass. I think of the trees in the treason trial. I associate the treason trial in the early 1960s in South Africa with the pine trees at the bottom of the garden that were the trees of the treason, and my father driving off to the trial in his old Austin. The mosaic tiled table on the veranda made the tiles of the treason trial. This was when I was between three and six years old. Looking at the tree, I think of shrapnel in the wood. A Swedish carpenter and shipbuilder friend complained of using German timber as it was so full of fragments of World War II ordnance. Seventy years on, the trees are still full of the bullets and the history of that time. I think of the beech forest of Buchenwald, the pollarder trees of the First World War. Think of the tree just standing, a prisoner in the garden, for 53 years. I think of a barrel bomb in Aleppo. I think of an internal tree growing one's own death. So the list could go on. We each have our own set of associations. 
Every encounter with the world is a mixture of that which the world brings to us and that which we project onto it. The tree is never just itself. Our biography is part of our understanding of the tree. To be schematic, we could say that the tree is the center and that all these other associations circle it, land on it, bend it, or break the branches. That which seems extraneous, we are unable to keep out of the center. Now, in the studio, this is even more obvious, not just the ideas released by the tree, but also the way in which the tree comes into being in the studio. The difference between a good brush and a bad brush, a good brush that makes a fine line and a bad brush in which the lack of point of the brush and the displacement of the bristles make for the random marks that construct foliage. And so from the very materials themselves, a whole forest of trees can be grown. I know there is a kind of Zen mindfulness that will try to exclude extraneous thoughts. But I would suggest that to try to get rid of all the extraneous thoughts is in fact to get rid of the tree itself. Describing a circle. Put a pin in a sheet of paper. Pull on a string against the pin. The line that divides the outside edge of the blank circle is the periphery. So the periphery is made as a pressure, as a force against the center. In Paris, the peripherique, the motorway that circles the 20 arrondissements of the historic center, delineates the banlieue, that which is outside of the center. Whereas, of course, here in South Africa, the periphery is even more obvious. We have a city center surrounded by townships, informal settlements. And the truth of the center is only comprehensible in relation to that which is outside of it. More than that, the meaning of the center is made by the periphery. However much financiers may wish to believe they are the makers of wealth and those beyond the glass towers are extraneous. But any reflection will show the dependence of the center on its periphery. Our gold mining history has always been subsidized by the rural areas. The formal economy always depends on the informal economy. Back in the studio, of course, it is not only the elements at the edge of images that structure it, but sometimes also what is completely outside the frame the migration of one image from one project or one idea to another. And the art in the studio is to not defend the center, but to be open to that which is apparently extraneous. The tree is never its own tree. The painting of peonies leads to ideas beyond that of flowers. We have to acknowledge that the act of seeing and of thinking is always a negotiation between that which comes towards us, and that which we project onto it. Our understanding of history, imperfect, idiosyncratic, is always shaped by our biography, and not necessarily our whole biography, sometimes just incidents or memories from it. But knowing how unstable reality is, we try to prop it up with the common ground we all have, and we wish for our understanding of the world to be reliable and stable and objective. Now, the periphery and its migration into the center is what I'm interested in this talk. And I want to look at these questions in relation to a project I've been working on in the studio, a series of projections and drawings that were made for an exhibition in Beijing, to think a bit about China for a moment. I mean, China hangs over us here in South Africa like a 
huge zeppelin, the scale of it, the scale of its hunger for resources, the scale of everything. China in Africa today, a series of questions rather than any answers. Are we just the tethered goat waiting to be eaten by the tiger? Easy pickings. The project for the exhibition in Beijing began with an invitation to show a selection of my work in a museum in that city. So at the beginning, curiosity and flattery are part of the equation. What was it in my work that would interest people there? But I wanted to find a link both to the work and also to make a work that would refer to this question of China and South Africa and the question of what link, what are the strange linkages that we feel by its presence. So everything was possible. It could be a drawing, it could be a film, a performance, poster sculptures. All was open. And the project began, as many of the projects I do, do begin, with a kind of distracted reading and looking. So I read the books of Lu Xun, a Chinese modernist whose sensibility made him feel very similar to the Japanese modernist Akutagawa, and also European early modernist writers in the tradition of the absurd like Gogol and Kafka. I looked at books of Chinese revolutionary posters. And here in the posters, it was the language that pulled me in. The exhortations, the instructions, the clamor of incredible and unstoppable enthusiasm. The slogans such as, work hard for the electrification of agriculture, crush the four olds, Never stop fighting. Guard the motherland. Struggle for a good heart. Burn the enslaving contract. Sharpen your philosophy. Struggle against the crooked valleys and rivers. Study hard by coal oil lamp. Radiate vigor. Smash all ox devils. Glow with health. Make the great motherland proud. The greater the hardship, the greater the hardship. Don't depend on the heavens and privatize the hereafter. So these sets of slogans were one set of ideas that energized and gave a shape to the start of the project. Another starting point. Some of the videos of the model operas performed during the period of the Cultural Revolution from 1966 to 1976. That's from when I was 11 to when I was 21. Now, the model operas of the Chinese Cultural Revolution were theater pieces of exemplary revolutionary content. It took the form of the Peking Opera and reworked this classical Chinese opera with revolutionary stories. There would be through passionate song and dance or speech, a peasant or a young soldier or a young communist would rouse their fellows to fight the Kuomintang or the Japanese. There would be ballet, there'd be martial arts, singing, with very precise percussion. Many red flags are waved, the enemy is defeated, everyone stops and sings the Internationale. Now, seeing these films, or these videos of these old performances, started the project. But to remind ourselves of the Cultural Revolution itself, we remember it was a huge upheaval in China from 1966 to 1976, in which the youth of China, following the slogan, it is right to rebel, turned against authority figures,
who has seemed to have abandoned the correct revolutionary path and become enmeshed in a world of bourgeois aspiration and comfort. The students were encouraged in their revolt by Mao himself. Now, the project can be described in a different way, the project of the Cultural Revolution. It can be described as a huge upheaval in China, provoked by a power struggle in the top ranks of the party, in which first students and then the workers and the army were used to both bolster political careers and to contest opposing viewpoints as to the direction the socialist revolution should take. So here already we have a gap in the center. Which is the correct description of the Cultural Revolution? Is it about a change of direction of the revolution, or is it a power struggle between leaders in the party? Which is the correct description? Now, this is not only a question of interpretation by commentators and historians. At its very heart, it is constructed through interpretation by the actors themselves. It's not as if outside an event there is interpretation and inside there is raw truth. Events, even from the inside, are always constructed by the meeting of the interpretation or understanding of the protagonists and the world around them. It's always a provisional, constructed truth. Now, these political battles are the center of the upheaval of the Cultural Revolution, but it was the things at the edges and the movements at the edges, the images caught in peripheral vision, that held me and provoked the making of the project. What were the things at the edges? There was the paraphernalia, the ephemera of the action. There were the huge hand-drawn large character broadsheets pasted onto walls at night in which members of the party or other authority figures were accused of corruption. So already history is coming into the studio in the form of suggesting a scale of brush mark, of lettering, of text as image. But primarily it was the model operas that held me. I started a notebook. I wrote on the cover, Notes Towards a Model Opera. And the project itself began with the morning's improvisation with Dada Masilo, a South African dancer, whom I'd worked before. We watched some of the films of the model operas. And in the first hour, we did a series of improvisations of dances based partly on the dances that Dada herself was doing at the time and images from the videos we had seen. And there were strangenesses, unexpected connections, collisions in the dance, and the dance in relation to the music from the model operas, of music from 1950s African colonial dance bands, at the end of that first hour of improvisation, it was clear the project could not be abandoned, even though it was, of course, very unclear what it would be or what it would mean. To take a walk around the edges of the project, a few of the peripheral thoughts that started circling the project and the studio and made their way into the center and the finished work. I look at a photograph taken by David Goldblatt in 1978 in Boxburg, east of Johannesburg. In the photograph, there is a young ballet dancer on the veranda of her house under a pergola. She's in her point shoes, in a tutu. Her hair is tied up in a tight bun at the back. But what is it that holds me when I look at this photograph? Of course, it is the tutu and the point shoes, but also the beatific expression on the girl's face, an ecstatic dream, 
even as I dance, I dream of dancing. The dream of being a prima ballerina assoluto, of Rudolf Nureyev on the other side of the stage of Swan Lake of Giselle. And one thinks how the dreams crash. It's not so much the harsh shadows of the pergola that crash down on the dancer, but that pitiless sunlight of the high-felt winter. I would describe this photograph that I'm looking at as merciless. There is no place to protect this dream of Europe. We're at the end of an enormously long string stretching from the ballet centers of Paris and Moscow, swung in an arc that reaches Johannesburg, Adelaide, Shanghai, which is a longing for this other world. Now, while this does not go back to the bathtub and the mango that I spoke of earlier, it does go back to our house, to my sister's ballet lessons, to her hopes, to the practice bar in the playroom. So when I see this Chinese dancing on point, all this is there. The fighting of the Japanese on point. Learning to throw a hand grenade on point. Charging through the enemy machine guns, waving the red banners on point. It is absurd, but there's also a strange beauty in the dancing. The perfect unity of the ensemble work and the sadness of the impossible hopes of Boxburg in our house and that gap, a kind of visible grief. But also there is surprise at the connections. We have ballet, a French art form perfected in Russia, which of course wins the cultural battles of the Soviet Union. It's the Bolshoi ballet rather than the modernism of Akarovo or even Diaghilev. So it's a conservative victory. And here in the Chinese model operas, we use this conservative victory to proclaim the revolutionary new. There's an unbridgeable gap between what is being made on stage and what is happening outside the theatres and the cinemas. Of course, in the Chinese context, the specifics of dancing on point can't be avoided. The violence done to the feet, to their binding into these point shoes. And here I remember the tears, the blood the cotton wool, the methylated spirits of my sister's attempt to wear the Cinderella ballet shoes. But let's push this one stage further, the question of the ballet, the revolutionary ballets. The great model revolutionary ballet and the central one that still gets performed today is called The Red Detachment of Women. The cast is almost entirely of women, and the pleasure reported by many people from China at the time of the Cultural Revolution was of the rare opportunity of looking at all those naked thighs with a clear revolutionary conscience. Now, the libido is seldom referred to in revolutionary or other political theory, but at the edges we show it is there. Desire is never far from the studio, from the theatre, from the Politburo. Mao's priapism and his lovers are not part of the official discourse, but they're there the connection between the biographical and the grand statement. To take that peripheral thought one circle further out, one thinks of political leaders and their entitled libidos. Not just Mao, of course, but Berlusconi, Bill Clinton, Fidel Castro, and I'm sure I've left one president out. Of course, President Kennedy. All of these float at the edge of this big question, the great proletarian cultural revolution, the biographical of Mao, of me, 
the peripheral longing for the center, the line of connection from Johannesburg to Shanghai, and the balance between the edges, ironic or not, and the great swell of pride also, one has to remember, that came over audiences watching these model operas, watching the defeat of the Japanese or the Kuomintang by the communist cadres and their red flags, to hold hope and disillusion together. Another peripheral thought. In 1958, as part of the Great Leap Forward, which was China's project of modernization, Mao declared war on the four bads. These were flies, mosquitoes, rats, and sparrows specifically the Eurasian tree sparrow. The tree sparrow ate seeds planted for the harvest. Killing the sparrows would boost food production. So tens of millions of sparrows were killed. But the sparrows had fed not only on seeds, but also on immature locusts. And there was then a huge plague of locusts. Crops were devastated. Through this and through other equally ill-advised decisions, between 20 and 30 million Chinese died of starvation. Now, the technique that Mao chose for the extermination of the sparrows was the mass mobilization of the peasants. They were instructed to rise before dawn and bang on their pots and pans to frighten the birds out of the trees, and then to keep beating their pots and pans whenever the birds tried to land so that in the end the birds would fall out of the sky with exhaustion. Now, the efficacy of this method of species extermination is disputed, but the death of the sparrows, the flourishing of the locusts, and the famine is not. The disasters of the Great Leap Forward lowered Mao's standing and power in China, and the great proletarian cultural revolution can be described as Mao's successful attempt to regain supreme position in the country. But what holds me here in the story of the Eurasian tree sparrow are the pots and pans, a line that jumps forward to the Arab Spring of recent years and back to China. One thinks of the protests in Gezi Park and Taksim Square in Istanbul, where the beating of pots and pans became a symbol of ungovernability and revolt, a bringing of the domestic to the larger political. But to return to the studio, everything has to happen twice. To have two resonances, a provocation in the studio, and an echo in the outside world. Here in the studio, the invitation is to work with pots and pans, with percussion, with rhythms of protest, which is, becomes a raw material waiting to be used, and an outside sense of the link between the domestic to the political, of private biographies going from the kitchen to meet larger histories. The copper or aluminium base of the pots becomes the membrane between the hopes, the desires, the fears of those whose pots they are and the world beyond them. A membrane between the personal and the political, between hope and the tear gas and bullets of the authorities. So the note to the self, then, when listening or thinking about this, to gather together in the studio wooden spoons, sieves, rubber spatulas, aluminium pots, and an image of my two-year-old grandson sitting on the floor beating an upturned saucepan with a wooden spoon. Now here we are off the wall and we're in the center of the studio, an insistence in the face of the big idea with these pots and pans. Here we are and we will be heard. Peripheral thought number eight.
In August of 1968, Mao was given a gift of a box of mangoes from the President of Pakistan. This event is so peripheral that in many histories of the Cultural Revolution it is not mentioned at all. But Mao did not eat the mangoes. He gave them to the worker-peasant Mao Zedong thought propaganda teams who were being deployed to bring the students under control at Beijing University. This was a small gesture with huge implications. This was the height of the student uprisings in Chinese schools and universities. The Red Guards, the students, were Mao stormtroopers, embodiments of the dictum that it is right to rebel. But Mao gave the mangoes not to the students but to the workers. It marked the end of student power and the handing over of control of the Cultural Revolution to the workers, which in effect meant to the army. Now this political shift was celebrated as an act of altruistic generosity on Mao's part. The mangoes firstly themselves were preserved in formaldehyde. Copies of them were made in wax and kept in glass domes like the relic of a saint. They were distributed around the country. They appeared on posters, on tray cloths, on enamel mugs. They were represented on huge floats in processions. The wax copies were kept in shrines and factories and schools. A feature film was made called The Song of the Mango. We have the absurd, the apotheosis of a common fruit, the transformation of an immaterial quality, the generosity of the great helmsman and his wisdom turned into these material objects, which had enormous political and human consequences. Tens of thousands of students' studies and lives were disrupted, often irrevocably, as they were sent for years to a form of penal servitude in different corners of the country. The students had served their purpose, resurrecting the unquestioned political supremacy of Mao. Now not only could they be dispensed with, but they could be crushed. Mao could be both the force behind the students and the force stopping them, agitator and policeman together. We spin out in two directions, sideways to the politics of fruit and vegetables and staying back at the year 1968, to the echoes of students in revolt in many places around the world. If possible, we should entertain both conjectures together, the politics of vegetables and 1968, but perforce we will do them sequentially. 1968. 1968, the student revolts of Paris in May 1968. Now, the student revolts in Paris and elsewhere were not the same as the student-led cultural revolutionary actions, but there were points of connection. Both tried to harness the energy of revolt among students and scholars rather than relying on the organization of the party. How could one find a revolutionary activity in Europe that escaped the moribund straitjacket of the old Stalinist communist parties? In China, how could Mao use this energy to reassert a continuing revolutionary role for the party? And let us not forget this for himself. 1968. The opposition to the Vietnam War, which reached us even in South Africa. Why do I remember this? Not just from an abstract or inherent interest in history. In 1968, I was 13, I was in Johannesburg, and I had such a strong feeling of being born five years too late and in the wrong country. 
If only I had been 18 in Paris or Berlin, I could have been part of these student protests. Students at the local university in Johannesburg and also in Cape Town then and later did hold protests at the edge of the university ground, but it felt a bit like the ballet dancer in Boxburg, a statement of longing to be in a different center. I thought at the time, in five years' time, when I'm 18, the Vietnam War will be over, students will be back at their studies, I will have missed it. I was right. But then, of course, in the mid-1970s, things in South Africa changed dramatically. I know I should be talking about the politics of the mango at the same time, but we will get to it, and then you will have to retrospectively place these two things on top of each other. But further edges here, from the mangoes of 1968 to Paris to Johannesburg, and a 13-year-old looking at newspaper photographs. There was the image of Jan Palach burning himself in Prague after the Russian invasion in the Prague Spring. Another image comes to mind of a Buddhist monk burning himself in protest in Saigon. I had remembered this as 1968, but when I did research, I saw, in fact, it was 1963, although I wouldn't have seen the photograph until later. This photograph from Saigon is of Thich Quang Duc, a Buddhist monk protesting over the policies of the South Vietnamese government. He sat in the road, Four other monks doused him with petrol, and he set himself alight. A shocking statement of belief and commitment. How could you believe in something so much as to do that to yourself? But if I study the photograph, the monk burning in the foreground, people in the road around him, the building across the road, a motor car with its bonnet open behind him, I study these details. And I look at the motor car behind the monk, and it was our motor car, an Austin Westminster A95, which we used to drive through the night to Plettenberg Bay on holidays. I was taken to school in it. This was the most respectable British car in Austin Westminster, driven all the way to Johannesburg, appearing here behind the burning monk in Saigon. To return from the sideways look in 1968, to the Chinese politics of vegetables and their representation. In China, there is a long history of the politics of vegetables and flowers and their representation. As early as the 13th century, a painting of a stem lettuce, upright and tall, stood for an educated man. Paintings of bitter bamboo shoots represented good government, because good government will accept difficult and bitter advice. Chinese court painters who had displeased the emperor and been sent into exile expressed their protests in their painting. That which was white was painted black, so you would have black blossoms on a branch. And they were known as black painters. Other paintings of fruit and vegetables made subtle political commentaries. If the weeds in a painting were too close to the bok choy, the emperor was paying insufficient attention to his territories and subjects. At the time of the Cultural Revolution, painters whose work was described as being too formal or not revolutionary in subject matter were castigated as black painters. Their careers and those of their supporters amongst the nomenclatura were ended. Of course, in many cases, the clashes were between people in power and the artists were merely acceptable casualties in these battles. But there were real arguments. 
And it comes back to the studio. What should an artist paint? Revolutionary narrative in a familiar form, the Peking Opera, the ballet on point, or new ways of making art in which the ostensible subject matter was never the real subject of the art. For some years now I have been drawing flowers, partly for the pleasure of the activity, of transforming ink and paper into petal, and partly as a resistance to the pressure to work on big themes, but very often simply in reference to the great French painter Edouard Manet, the most sublime painter of peonies and lilacs, but also the painter of the execution of Emperor Maximilian, a painting which places him together with Goya and Picasso with his Guernica and Goya's Third of May in the front rank of artists painting political events. Now, this in a way is a link from the studio to the outside world, from the specific activities of being an artist in the studio. It's looking at how Manet painted a bunch of asparagus, how he showed the sheen on the foil of a bottle of champagne. These are the concern of someone involved with the activity of making images of the outside world. A further, further peripheral thought at the edge of these ideas circling the question. Manet painted his masterpiece, The Execution of Emperor Maximilian, in 1868 or 1869. The Emperor of Mexico, abandoned by his Austrian family, was captured by Mexican revolutionaries and shot in 1867. The last act before his overthrow was to order from Trieste, his previous home, 1,000 nightingales to fill the gardens of the palace with song at night. So here we have both sparrows and nightingales perched around the edges of the studio. There's a double link to Manet the painter, to the fruit and flowers and vegetables in China and in Paris, but of course the great link is to the Paris Commune of 1871. The Paris Commune of 1871, coming at the end of the Franco-Prussian War, was a spontaneous people's uprising in Paris, with the barricades and all the images one has of that in one's head. And it was an inspiration during the Cultural Revolution, and particularly during the student protests of the 1968s. On the same streets in 1968, students pried from the ground the same cobblestones used in the 1871 Paris Commune. The red flag of the model operas makes a semaphore to the red flags of the Place de République a hundred years before. Another quote from that newspaper from the Paris Commune of 1871 pinned up in the studio walls. May the 16th, 1871. Now, citizens, we remind you that more than ever we must rally round our red flag to preserve the Republic. Long live the Commune, long live the Republic. This flag of the Paris Commune is shattered into fragments and one thinks of 400,000 students in Tiananmen Square, each waving their own little red flag, the red book of the thoughts of Chairman Mao. And the Internationale, of course, the anthem of the socialist movement around the world, all spreading out from Paris. We are spinning in time from 1871 to 1968 to 1963 to 2016. And in place, too, we are spinning from Shanghai to Paris to Prague 
to Johannesburg, nightingales and sparrows buffeted across the world. The central tenet of the great proletarian cultural revolution was the transformation of the consciousness of the people. Partly this was to be achieved by exemplary models. The perfect model peasant, the model worker, the model soldier. These are shown in the model operas. But part was also done through criticism and destruction of the old. And the world was divided into the good, the comparatively good, and the bad. The good was to be celebrated, the comparatively good was to be retrained, and the bad was to be rooted out. Through self-criticism struggle sessions, as they were called. Now there are grotesque images of people who are accused of either rightist views or of having the wrong class position, or even the wrong parents. There are images of them wearing long pointed dunce caps and sandwich boards proclaiming their faults. These also in the studio echo several of Goya's etchings of the early 19th century, the image of victims of the Inquisition chained in dunce caps wearing sandwich boards on which their crimes are written. An orthodoxy and authority with no place for uncertainty or criticism. The dance of these dunces, the people with their sandwich boards and dunce caps, becomes, as it were, the backstage dance of the model operas the dance which the audience never gets to see, but without which the front dance cannot happen. And we bring it into the studio. The fool's cap and the sandwich board become some of the props for the project. Literally, dances are improvised with singers and dancers, some with the heroic costumes of the Cultural Revolution, some with these dunce caps and sandwich boards. A megaphone inverted becomes a dunce cap. It becomes its own mute. Now, the Paris Commune was crushed. After weeks of the barricade, there followed the Semin Sanglante, the week of blood, the repression and execution of the communards. The image of the shooting of the Emperor Maximilian could have been replaced by images of hundreds of others. Karl Marx, whose writings had been the inspiration for many in the Commune, wrote at the time of the necessary failure of the Commune. He said the proletariat was insufficiently aware of itself and its class position to make a revolution. So we are gathering around in the studio the pots and pans, Manet's flowers, the bok choy of Chinese vegetables, Chinese childhood memories, ballet shoes, nightingales and sparrows. In China, even during the Cultural Revolution, some of its leaders wrote of the probable defeat and of the probable imminent failure of it. So the idea of failure, probable, impending or necessary, take one's choice, sits on the walls of the studio, an element in the mix, but also inevitably the question of hope behind the failure. Where does that leave us? China, Paris, and old French colonialism, new colonialism, we set all in motion. There's an incoherent hullabaloo. What are the operas that could be made? Do we call up Patrice Lumumba? Do we call up Nyerere's Ujama theory of African socialism? Does Franz Fanon come in and sit in the corner of the studio? The hullabaloo is in the center. 
Cohesion is temporary. Defeat is certain but temporary. Success is certain but temporary. We have hope and failure. Two sparrows flying through the din of the pots and pans of the edicts and the theories and the private histories. Thank you.